Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hello, I'm Gail. And hello, I'm Catherine. We are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. We invite you to join our podcast discussion club. Uh, We welcome referrals to speak to your organization or group. And don't forget to visit our website at womenover70.com to download the playlist of all episodes. Each week, we showcase vital women ages 70 through 100 who continue to shatter the myths that we become invisible as we age. And today we are excited to welcome Kat Parenti to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Kat is 75 years old. She currently lives in Arizona. After graduating from Fordham University in New York City in Russian Studies, English, and Political Science, Kat worked for the United Nations and then began 20 years of living off and on in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We're excited for you to meet Kat and hear her story. Exporter, teacher, presenter, foodie, author, and champion of the Afghan culture and its peoples, Kat has lived an extraordinary life. An empowered woman, woman considered a hero for her work on behalf of Afghanistan, she was honored by then Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. Above all, she continues to advocate for the children and women of Afghanistan and hopes her books, which are used as worldwide educational tools, will promote peace, understanding, and diversity. So thanks for being with us today, Kat. We are very interested to learn how it was that Afghanistan touched your heart and became integral to your life's work. Thank you, Gail. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate being on the show. Well, we're glad to have you. Very glad to have you. So what what do you want to tell us about how Afghanistan touched your heart? I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and I thought the sky was a rectangle of blue. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got to Afghanistan and I saw the mountains and I saw the tiny little houses huddled at their feet and saw the sky. And I thought, this is what the earth truly is. And we, citified people, live in an artificially manufactured culture. I love these people so much, the Afghans. They actually reminded me of the Brooklyn Italians in some ways. And I'm a Brooklyn Italian. And I don't know if anybody remembers the movie Moonstruck with Cher. Oh, yes. <laughs> Olympia Dukakis, Nicolas Cage. Yes, all those people. And that was what my family was like without the really heavy Brooklyn accent. I know I still have an accent, but... (laughs) So, um, I don't know if you guys remember the scene where they're sitting at the table having dinner, and Olympia Dukakis looks up 
at her husband and says, I don't want you to see that woman anymore because he was having an affair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He jumps up from the table. You think he's going to take the table and turn it over and just beat up everybody in the room. And he goes, oh, okay, and sits back down. <laughs> this was my family. My father was like that. Oh, my. <laughs> and my mother was like Olympia Dukakis. <laughs> so, the Afghans are very, very similar. Now, I'm talking about pre-Soviet invasion, pre-Mujahideen wars, and pre-Taliban. Okay? Mm -hmm. So... What, they're do what they were doing is living in a largely matriarchal culture. The man was the figurehead. He was the one that went out and decided which tribe they should have a fight with today or how they should pasture their animals, etc., etc. And the women made all the other decisions. How many children they would have, what kind of herbs and things they would take to either prevent or promote pregnancy, what the child would be raised as, oh, this one is going to be an embroiderer. Oh, this one is going to be a farmer. Oh, this one, the mother, plural, because in some cases you had more than one mom, because the man had more than one wife, although I must say very clearly, and again, I'm talking about prior, when I first went to Afghanistan in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the people, the men that had more than one wife, they usually married sisters, so the women would get along with each other. And it was predicated on how much the person could, the man could afford, because each wife has to have the idea identical setup that the other wife has. If one has a gold bracelet, the other one has a gold bracelet. If one has two pairs of shoes, the other one has two pairs of shoes. It has to be equal at all times. So this was basically the so-called middle class, which were the merchants of Afghanistan. The nobility they practice what we practice in the West, which is one wife, and that's the end of that. The poor people, they couldn't afford to have more than one wife, so they had a lot of children, so they get a lot of help. But the middle class, those were the merchants who had more than one wife, if they could afford it. The other thing I want to bring up is the veil. Again, talking in the 70s, the veil was a choice. And I clearly see this, just like I'm looking at Gail's picture here while I'm speaking to you. The women from the farms, they never, ever wore a veil. However, if they wanted to go into the city, they would carry the veil, and then when they got near the city, they would put the veil on. It's called a chadari, not a burqa. A burqa is what you have in Pakistan. They put the chadari on, they'd go into the city, they'd get to, example, Muhammad Ali's shop, they'd go into the shop, and they would 
push back the front piece of the veil so you could see them clearly. And they would talk and chat and do the business they had to and the embroidery and whatever. And then when they left, they're out on the street, they put the veil down again. The middle class women did the same thing, but in their case, it was considered a status symbol. Mm. That they are not agriculturalists. They can be ladies of leisure and they can wear the veil showing that they don't do physical work. Mm. Of course, the nobility, they never wore the veil. They had a pair of sunglasses, and maybe a scarf around their head. Loose, very loose. So that was the Afghanistan that I lived in. And the people were kind, generous to each other very loving to each other, very respectful. The children were respectful to the parents. They called their mothers things like dear heart, my soul, my life. It was a very beautiful, loving, happy, healthy culture. They didn't know from manufactured foods. Everything was fresh. Largely, people had their own farms, their own gardens, their own fruit trees their own animals. I mean, it was a really, really wonderful culture. So that is the background to why I fell in love with these people. And I was prepared to live there for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Then the Soviets invaded. Yeah. What else you guys want to (laughs) know? I just, I'm curious, were you working for the UN when when you first went to Afghanistan? No. So what brought you there in the first place? I had past life recall since I'm three years old. Mm -hmm. I see Afghanistan in my mind's eye. I didn't know what it was. It was a three-year-old child. But I could see in my mind's eye this place, the goldish-colored mountains, the purplish tips, the plains, the, the animals, the nomadic peoples. And I had this constant, constant vision until I was in Afghanistan and saw that same scenario. Mm -hmm. So I had been driven to go there since I'm three. So on just on your own, you somehow you, you decided to go. Yeah, absolutely. And you were what in your twenties? How old were you? Yes, My early twenties. Correct. Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) And, And then when the Soviets invaded, then, then what happened? Then all these beautiful people became very fearful. They started crying. They would no longer invite you to their homes, which they did all the time. Whenever I would reach the airport in Kabul, by the time I got a taxi, I had a house there and a servant and a dog and a horse and, you know, the whole thing. And the ser- just let me say one thing. Servants were members of the family. They lived with you. And you were bound by Islamic law, all Muslims were, and I considered myself a Muslim at the time. I mean, I didn't convert or anything like that. There was no necessity. But um, you were bound to give them gifts on holidays. You were bound to give them certain kinds of food. You were bound to give them an animal, a sheep. So this man could feed his family or this woman. In my case, it was a man. And he was just, he was my confidant. 
He was my helper. I never made a move without consulting him. Okay, now I'm going to do this. Is that okay to do here? No, 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 my dear mistress. You must not do that. You must do this instead. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So we were like friends. Yes, he cleaned the house and he made the food. Yeah, and he went to the market and all that. When he went to the market, he'd get the, quote, latest news, whatever that was. <laughs> okay, so what happened when the Soviets came? Oh, as I said, by the time I landed at the airport, took the taxi, got to my house, my phone was ringing. Now, this is not a cell phone. This is a landline in the house. Mm-hmm. And people were vying to be the first to invite me to the welcoming dinner. <laughs> Welcome to Afghanistan. Well, that all disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, the king, the last king, he went to Italy for an eye operation. And his brother-in-law saw the chance to, quote, modernize Afghanistan, unquote. And he approached the United States. Of course, the United States didn't see anything there that they wanted. It was just a pile of sand, according to the United States and the mountains. So they said, no, my dear friends, we can't help you. Now, this guy was undaunted. He wanted to modernize Afghanistan. So he turned to the next superpower, the Soviet Union. And the Soviets were delighted. Yes, absolutely. We'll come in there and help you. So they sent, quote, unquote, advisors. And my friend, Karim, who was in the ministry, one of the ministers, um, he told, now he told me this later, after the Soviet invasion, after he and his family escaped to the United States and I met them in the States, blah, 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 blah. He told me that he had just, say, a nine by 12 office and the advisor had a five-by-five office. And within three years, the advisor came in and said, you will take my office and I will take this one. And that happened to every minister in the government. So Daoud, who is the brother-in-law of the king, he panicked. So he approached the Soviets and said the equivalent of my dear brothers, we really appreciate your help. We understand how to do this. You know, we would like you to go home and, you know, we're going to give you a party and all this kind of stuff. Soviets said, absolutely. So they gave him a party, December, 1979. And Karim had a prophetic dream not to go. And this other man, Halim, he too, And they both didn't go, and that's why they were alive to tell me what happened. At the stroke of midnight, the Soviet advisors, each one was sitting with their own minister, kind of, they removed their guns from their holsters and blew the minister's brains out. Then, they pre-planned this, they rolled the tanks across the northern border of Afghanistan, because remember, When the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union, you had the governments of Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. You had these governments, and they were Soviet socialist republics along the northern border. So the Soviets planned this very carefully. 
They rolled the tanks over at the stroke of midnight right after the massacre, went right to the palace, killed Daoud, his entire family, his servants, children, everyone. And then they got a hold of the only means of communication at that time, which was Radio Afghanistan, called Bo, a radio station. They got on the radio and they said, the Americans and the Chinese have invaded your country and mm -hmm. we have come to liberate you. Wow. <laughs> so were you there? I'm sorry, were you there at that time? Oh, yes. Yes, you were there. Okay. Oh, yes, ma'am. I was in Pakistan and I heard this and I came back to Afghanistan to my house to see what was going on, et cetera, et cetera. And it was still pretty free-flowing at that time because they had taken over, you know. But after the initial takeover, you had, like, the Afghan army that supported this, part of them supported this. They were roaming the streets, marching and yelling, you know, long live the Republic, long live Afghanistan, this kind of thing, you know. And... Um, so I started to see the changes in the people, the fear in the people, the grief, the sorrow. As I said, no foreigner was invited to any Afghan home anymore. Mm. That was the end of that. So how did you support yourself while you were there? You had, I know you had Kathy Parenti Imports. Correct. And um, so tell us a little bit about that. Well, when I went there and everything was good and peaceful, I noticed their clothing, the household goods they had, like bedspreads, like rugs, like wall hangings. And I thought, I bet there is nobody in New York that's ever seen anything like this. So I got together with the merchants, got a whole bunch of stuff, shipped it back, went home to New York. And I approached Henry Bendel's uh, and Bloomingdale's because I knew those stores would most likely take some of the stuff, and they did. So I started a small business. And I was totally happy. I was living six months in New York, six months in Afghanistan. And then I started hiring local women to do embroidery work for me on Western designs. Then I went into the jewelry thing to get the men to make jewelry. Now, the jewelry I sold to museums and museum shops along the East Coast of the United States. So I gave the locals work supporting their economy and brought stuff home that people had never seen. And, you know, everybody was thrilled all the way around, and I was happy because I'm one of these people that I always like to do some kind of service. Mm -hmm. So that was my service to humanity. And then when did you start teaching and educating and writing books? Um, that was, okay, so after the Soviet invasion, there was not going to be a handicrafts business. Forget that. Everybody was scared out of their minds. Mm -hmm. So I said to myself, okay, what can I do? How can I help? And I met a minister in New York at a party. And, you know, he shared with me what I shared with you. And then he said, 
we need somebody to go inside Afghanistan. The Soviets have locked everything down. There's no news whatsoever coming out of there. No foreigner can enter Afghanistan except a Soviet. And we want to know really what's going on and bring it to light in America. And they said, we think you would be perfect. We can't send a man in there for one reason. A man is not going to be able to go in and interview the women. And we mm -hmm. know that there are women freedom fighters just as there are men freedom fighters. We want you to go and interview the women. And you speak the language sufficiently to be able to do this. You know our customs. We think that you would be the person that should go in there. Because the minister had a you know partner. They opened up a, an American nonprofit. But he was a guy. So they said, we want you to do this if you wish to do it. And I said, absolutely. So I went over there. I flew into Pakistan because, as I said, Afghanistan was locked down. And then I met with some Mujahideen commanders. I told them, you know, what was going on. They said, we'll give you all the help we possibly can. I said, fine. So I climbed the Hindu Kush mountains, which are the mountains between Pakistan and Afghanistan. They're about 13,000 feet high. And I climbed them with a group of Mujahideen until I got over the mountains inside Afghanistan. And then I had a couple of projects going. One of them was the delivery of RH negative blood to a hospital because the Afghan women, many of them had RH negative blood, number one. Number two, they were having spontaneous abortions because of all the stress and trying to escape and on and on and on. So I managed to get that delivered to the, to the women's hospital there. And another project was to deliver little seed packets like you and I go to the hardware store in the spring and we get a little seed packet and we grow tomatoes and peppers and onions. Mm -hmm. These people inside Afghanistan had not seen vegetables for 12 years because of the bombing and the destruction. So I collected so many seed packets from the Girl Scouts of America that a fellow friend of mine, he had 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 a small business in Afghanistan of carpets, and he said, Kat, you're not going to be able to carry this stuff over in a suitcase. And I said, yeah, I guess not. He said, I will get you a U.S. cargo plane, and they'll fly it into Pakistan for you, and the Mujahideen can take it over from there. Hmm. So that was another project that I had, the seeds for crop planting, and then and the, the RH negative blood. And then the other thing was to go not only into Afghanistan and interview the women fighters, but go into Pakistan in the camps in Peshawar, northwestern Pakistan, because that's like right on the border of Afghanistan, and to interview the women again the women mujahideen the women who were the wives of fighters they were just the homemakers in the camps see what the need was the greatest need was shoes 
and cloth for clothes. So that, I went with the chief freedom fighter at the time of Afghanistan, and uh, her name was Crowned Queen. And my God, this woman, she was like five feet two. She probably weighed 98 pounds, and she had a backbone of steel. <laughs> she was an amazing, amazing fighter. And she and I got together, and we went into the bazaars because a lot of the merchants had fled Afghanistan, set up their shops and the shower, and we told everybody what we were doing. And most This stuff is still painful for me. I'm sorry. Most of these merchants, even though they were refugees themselves and barely making it, gave cloth and shoes in abundance. We needed three trucks to be able to deliver this stuff, and I mean big trucks, into the camps for the women, and especially the widows, because they had no recourse whatsoever unless someone were to marry them, somebody who survived from either their family or their husband's family. Most of these people, everything was bombed out, including their families. And we went in there and gave them as much as we could. Hmm. So, <sighs> and uh, But you've written a lot of books, I, I believe, yes. correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so what? tell us about some of those books. Well, most of them, believe it or not, are out of print. I wrote them in the 80s. Um, the first one was called Afghanistan, the Cuisine of the Crossroads of the World. And it was in the Smithsonian Library for a couple of years because nobody had ever seen anything like this. I mean, the you know, what I wrote about, it, it was just a very simple book. It wasn't... Uh, big color pictures or anything like that. It was a few hand drawings. And it was the culture wrapped around recipes and the beliefs of Muhammad, the, the true beliefs of Muhammad the prophet, not the garbage they're spewing today with the Taliban and ISIS. Nothing to do with that. The true culture wrapped around recipes and stories and poetry and laughter and jokes. And the second book was written... Um, Oh, gosh, I don't know, maybe late 80s. And it was called um, A Taste of Afghanistan also. And that had pictures, pictures of the people and the war and that kind of thing and what happened to them and the war stories. Again, more recipes and things. But it was largely concentrated on the war. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the next book was written in 2009, and it was kind of like a mini memoir of what I had done so far. And again, all chock full of culture and the romance that I had with an Afghan nobleman who became the father of my daughter. He was assassinated by the Soviets in the bombing of Jalalabad with his entire family. And I was witness to that. I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. Mm. And as a result, she was born physically disabled because of the chemical warfare that the Soviets swore they never used. Mm. Wow. 
And 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 uh, speaking about your daughter, she is uh, nonverbal, right? Yeah. Yet tele telepathic. And uh, you you talked to me about her website, so I went on grandmachandra.com. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and she is amazing in what it is that she can do telepathically for folks. Exactly. She's a spiritual counselor. That's the way we position that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she helps so many people. Most of them, I only know about it because they either call or email me and they're crying and they're grateful and thank you. And this was going on and you helped me. And, you know, somebody said I had terminal cancer, but you healed me. You know, she's a healer, a distance healer. She's just a really, truly amazing human being. And I'm very, very proud of her, of course. And she, when I was pregnant, my husband was killed. He passed his lineage. He was a Sufi master, which is an Islamic mystic. And these people can do things like Chandra can do. They can distance heal you. They can bilocate. They could be sitting here in Arizona in the room talking to me. And at the same time, they could be sitting in the room with you and Catherine and mm. talking to you. Mm. So he passed his gifts to the fetus upon his death and she has his gifts. Mm. It's so interesting. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's very interesting. We interviewed a woman named Yanya Abi. And uh, she was in the first season. And she is a telepathic healer. She's how old, Catherine? 87? 80. She's in her late 80s, 87. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. I'm just, I'm, when did you, how did your daughter, you see, your daughter was with born, was born with some dis disabilities. And how did it come to be that you or she were, became aware of her telepathic gifts? Well, when she was nine, um, I moved to Arizona because there was a clinic here. I moved when she was two years old. There was a clinic here that helped handicapped kids without drugs or surgeries. Hmm. And I'm all about that. So we moved here and we really had hardly any communication except like I mean, I talked to her all the time. I talked to her when she was in the womb. But as far as responses, when I would ask her a question, she'd like, you know, give me five if that's what she wanted. So when she was nine, the music, she had music therapy, drumming, because that's gross motor. She doesn't have any fine motor. And... Um, the music therapist approached us and said, you know, I have some people coming here and they have a communication device for people who are nonverbal and cannot use their hands. And I'm thinking maybe Chandra would be interested. So I was so excited. I said to her, oh, look at this. We're going to help you. We're going to get you something so you could talk. And, you know, she was largely expressionless at that time. I mean, you know, she had beautiful eyes and she could look at you, but she didn't have really, you know, a, a huge expressive face. And I was like, okay, this is great. So I take her to the appointment and there's a woman there and 
she has a child's table and chairs. And my daughter's very tiny today. She's four foot four and weighs about 45 pounds. So she's very tiny. Mm. Anyway, um, we sit down at this table. And this woman shows Chandra this little handheld, lack of a better term, early computer. Because, you know, Chandra's 37 today. And it was called the Canon M Communicator. And she says, now look, Chandra, I'm going to show you, you know, I'm going to ask you some questions. And here's the Y for yes, and here's the N for no. It was the same as a computer board. Okay. The only difference is, she's talking to Chandra, I'm going to put my finger underneath your index where your middle knuckle is to give you the support because Chandra's hands were always like very gently closed. So I'm going to support your finger and, you know, you can tell me, yes, you like it. No, you don't like it. As far as the pictures and things. She gets to about the third thing, you know, like, do you like bananas? Yes. Do you want to go to the park? Yes. Or whatever, or uh, whatever she said. Chandra went ballistic. I had never seen this kid have an expression, never mind physically move. She threw the machine off the table. She pushed all the stuff off this child's table and she hit this woman in the face. Mm. I was horrified. The woman was as calm as anything. She said, I think Chandra has a lot more to say than just yes and no. She supports my daughter's finger, and these were the first words that came out from my daughter to me. Mom lied. Angry, not talking. She thought that when I said something to help you talk, she meant, you know, that I meant talk like Gail and Catherine and Kat are talking. She didn't realize it was going to be a machine. Mm. Anyway, that was the first time that I was able to hear anything from this kid. And she went to school, always with a personal assistant. I didn't go to school with her. I wasn't interested in repeating grammar school. And she went with a personal assistant who could communicate with her. And they used the Canon M communicator. They didn't really use telepathy. That was a little bit later. She'd use it with the neighbor's kid, the teacher, the speech therapist, da 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 Not with me. So I got the music therapist to come in and sit down and let her work with Chandra on the machine. And I sat across the room and I said, why is it you will not use this with me? She printed out, because you need to become telepathic with me. <laughs> wow. I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> I laughed. I said, well, in that case, you'd better train me. And she did in my dream state. Mm. Wow. And so that's how you communicate. That's how we communicate. Absolutely. And I must say, there's at least 400 to 1,000 people on the planet today that can communicate with her this way. Mm -hmm. Her two business partners. 
you get them going on Skype, it's a business meeting, you don't hear a word because they're all telepathing with each other. Mm. And then after about 15, 20 minutes, I'll go over, I'll say, ladies, do you have any questions? Yes. Okay. The first question always is, did we get that right, Chandra? Yes. Okay. So she has her own business. She's had it since she's like 16. She loves it. She loves helping other people. Loves it. <laughs> she hasn't uh, gone far from her mother. <laughs> guess not huh <laughs> no i guess not you know the the time just goes by so quickly yeah. and unfortunately we do have to wrap up when okay. i when i said that you had you lived an extraordinary life i had no idea of the really the breadth and depth of it and and the journey that you've been on with your daughter it's it's just amazing, Kat, absolutely amazing. And um, we so appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. Do you mind if I just tell people what I'm doing currently? It's like three sentences. Please do. Right now, I'm starting a program through Zoom to be able to have conversational English with Afghan school teachers inside Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that will be, again, my service to them. And then we want to go for a USAID grant to put small handheld, let's call them phones. They don't have Apple. They have Android. But Android phones into the hands of the school children. So no matter what happens with the government, these kids can learn virtually. Oh, wonderful. That's really great. Wonderful. Good luck with that. We Yes, thank you for telling us about that, too. Thank um, you. Well, thank you, Kat, so much for joining us today. And listeners, we want to hear from you. Become an active participant in our community through the Facebook group and the monthly Zoom gatherings. And we'll see you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.